Blog Talk Radio. Chatting with Sherry. Today we welcome back award-winning author, uh, screenwriter, and producer Tom Bomquist. We're going to talk about a lot of things, theater, film, TV, his career, his writing, everything. Here's Tom. Hi, Tom. Welcome back to the show. Thanks, Sherry. Nice to uh, be back with you. Thanks for having me. How are you, and how's everything in your end of the world? Everything uh, in Charleston, South Carolina is wonderful. We love it here, and uh, we're almost uh, coming on three years of uh, having uh, left Los Angeles, and uh, we we love it here, and I kind of wish we had done it sooner. It's a great place to live and and write and just hang out. I have a cousin who lives near there. She likes it, too. I don't don't know... The humidity would be hard for me. People are are great. You know, culturally, there's there's just a gentle spirit to uh, a place like this that's just really decent and uh, relaxed. And uh, it's, it's a, you know, Charleston's really a small town that thinks it's a city, you know, but it's really a small town. And it it does have that small town vibe. And, and, uh, and it's great. It's a lot of fun. I think the weather would get to me and the humidity. Well, it certainly is, uh, you know, uh, formidable at times, sure. Uh, but, you know, I, what I've learned is, um, first of all, living in Los Angeles for all those years, uh, it almost gets uh, boring because the weather doesn't change much and it's it's uh, ideal all the time, uh, kind of. and. Uh, I grew up in Chicago, and I, I remember those horrible winters and humid, horrible summers, and um, uh, I, I do not miss the winters, but the, the rest of it, having actual seasons, uh, I'm sure people listening to this, you know, appreciate it. It's just, it, there are real seasons here, but the winters are very mild. It's very similar to Los Angeles, actually, in the winter, um, and um, the humidity, you get used to it. And uh, you don't think you would, but you do. You you do. And I, I've been on movie locations, TV locations, all over the country. And you know, it's no different than being in Texas or Florida or Tennessee or half a dozen other places I've worked um, in the summer. It's just humid and awful, and that's why they invented air conditioning. <laughs> so why? Yeah, so it means basically you stay inside all the time uh, <laughs> with the air going. Well, used to being wet. That's the thing. You get used to being wet. You step outside and you're instantly wet. And you go into a restaurant or a supermarket or something, and then it's cool in there and you dry off. And then you step outside, bam, you're wet again. And you, that's that's the routine, you know. And then at the end of the day, you take a shower or whatever, and you're and you're fine. Um, but it it is not. Uh, uh, what's the word? Uh, it, you know, everything's a trade-off, you know. Uh, mm-hmm. the, uh, I will take this and the uh, hurricane season over the earthquake threat in California any day. Um, and uh, uh, because there's no warning for that, there's plenty of warning for this other stuff. And uh, so we don't really have tornadoes here very often, um, but earthquakes are, are uh, frightening. And you know, this, this is just life, this is great. I, well, yeah, I know. We live on a seismic planet, and there's nowhere you can go. Uh, everywhere right. has its own issue. But there's That's one right. big difference between the hurricanes and tornadoes and the earthquakes. Earthquakes, yes, there's no warning, but big ones only happen every 10, 20 years. Hurricanes and tornadoes 
happen every year. <laughs> yeah, sure. They happen, but they're not all big. And, you know, that the, you know, the, there are historic ones, you know, hundred year flood type things. And, and then there's, um, you know, but earthquakes can, can be uh, alarming, you know, none, nonetheless. And, and I had my fill of that. So I'm glad to, even though we can have an earthquake here, uh, we're on a fault in Charleston, but you know, it's hundreds of years between earthquakes, not minutes like Los Angeles has earthquakes almost constantly. We just don't ever feel them, you know. Yeah. And so, uh, but it's always a trade-off. There's always something somewhere. And uh, here it's you know humidity, like most of the country in the summer. And and then there is a tropical storm or hurricane season, and you do your best to batten down the hatches. And you know we've done it. We've evacuated a couple of times since we've been here. And uh, you know you totally doable. And People get really used to it. The the veterans, they just kind of shrug. No, yeah, big deal. I'm staying. <laughs> they don't. They don't. It takes a lot to impress them. They've been through quite a bit of stuff. It's sort of like a California native, like me, in an earthquake. It's like, eh. oh, four pointer, big deal. <laughs> no, nothing. The Northridge earthquake. Uh, I'll I'll never forget that. Oh, that was that was horrible. That was the worst earthquake I've I've been through two majors, and that was one of them. And the, yeah, the, yeah. the first one was bad. That was the Silmar quake when I was like nine, well, eight years old. But the right. Northridge quake, that was the biggest ever in LA, I think. I think really in was, in recorded well, history. In our, in our lifetime, yeah, sure. Um, I think Northridge was the biggest because it was. It was three different earthquakes that connected with each other, so it it was scary. <laughs> yeah, um, you know, we, we had a lot of damage in there, and and uh, we know people that were truly freaked out by what they went through, and a lot of people died, and so you know it's uh, that's the trade-off part. I, I, I'm not going to miss the threat of that, really, you yeah. know, and uh, and and it's a different, you know, it's a, every part of the country has such a different tradition and history and vibe to it and uh, this is a very appealing uh, combo of those things that's for sure well at least you don't live near volcanoes that's correct <laughs> so you got that <laughs> that's right absolutely <laughs> um i uh, just trade off um are you have you been watching like streaming movies or have you been going to the movies anything interesting that really knocked you out mm, interesting um not so much uh we certainly haven't been going to the movies uh, a lot of those weren't open and even if they were um you know we we tried to be be responsible and uh uh, and kind of civilized uh, about that, and and um, so you know we're we're my wife and I are you know in that target uh, audience for uh, for COVID. So we we played that really low. We watch a lot of TV, and um, but now that you've asked me about it, though, I'm trying to think of some some of the ones we've seen that were really good. Um, uh, what was the one um, prom? Did you see that on, I think, was it Netflix or Hulu? That was a really interesting, you know, musical, Broadway musical uh, done as a movie. Uh, I didn't think I was going to like it because I don't tend to like musicals um, as an art form, but I really like that a lot. And uh, uh, we've been trying to just catch up on older movies that, that we've missed or I haven't seen in a long time. I always kind of write it down when I think of one, you know, and then go looking for it and watching a lot of those. So, uh, um, you know, and then streaming series, you know, as, as we hear about them or they occur to us, we want to watch something, you know, like Longmire and is one that I like a great deal. Uh, of course, Shed's Creek and you know, some of those are, are, uh, great, uh, uh, Great time passers, you know, when you're confined in a in a quarantine tech setting. Um, and I'm completely hooked on the Curse of Oak Island reality show. Love that show. Watch it uh, 
and uh, uh, I may have to go back now and watch some of it again because of uh, talking about interesting history. Wow, very very interesting what they're uncovering over there. I'm um, I'm more of a classic movie person myself. I like the older movies, you know, with the sure. older movie stars, you know, Bogart, Cary Grant, uh, Carol oh, Lombard. Yeah. That's more mm-hmm. like my style. But I love musical theater. One of my crushes when I was a little girl was Gene Kelly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> sure. It's just, uh, you know, as an art form, uh, you know, I don't want to offend anybody that's a big music musical lover. I've certainly seen some that I've liked, but um, you know, as a narrative writer of screen fiction, um, I'm always dubious when people are singing about how they feel and or they stop the plot in order to do that. You know, well. Let me tell you, you want to know what I think about you, Sherry? Well, I'll tell you. I think you're great. You know, it's like, it just, it stops me and it doesn't pull me in. Uh, I loved Moulin Rouge because I thought he had found a way to kind of reinvent the film musical. And I, I really liked that, the contemporary songs and the, you know, it was just a really bright, um, reimagining of what a film musical could be like, you know, and, uh, you know, yes, uh, West Side Story is great, and, you know, I had a friend that was in that, uh, but the, um, I, I'm less interested in something like that that just stops the show in order to sing and, and do a dance number. Uh, 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 that's for sure, so. Well, I mean, I kind of, I like, I like Phantom, I like Les yeah. Mis, um, I like Hamilton, um, you know, I, I love musical theater, um, but I like the kind, I, I mean, when I was 12 years old, we saw The King and I with uh, Yul Brenner, and I think I floated on that for two weeks. <laughs> yeah, I yeah. And it's just, you know, it, I think we're all just wired a little differently for our entertainment um, itch scratching, you know. <laughs> and for me, uh, I think it was probably a lot of the old musicals uh, were uh, were really on the nose uh, about the storytelling and the emotional content through the songs. And as a kid, I think that turned me off. So when I see one, uh, and I do see them, but I don't necessarily enjoy them. But, you know, when I see one that's really uh, clever and, um, uh, you know, like Les Mis or something, you know, The Phantom, I mean, those, those are great shows, and I've seen them on stage and, and so forth. But as, as a species, that, that's just not what I gravitate to. I wouldn't go looking for a musical to, see, to watch tonight, you know, I just generally uh, would rather just watch a drama or a comedy, you know, where dialogue and, and action is is moving the the plot points down the road and the emotions and not songs, because a lot of the songs just tend to be really, for me, very on the nose. And so, you know, something happens and then we sing about it and then something happens and then we sing about it that it happened and then we sing, you know, just uh, dramatically for me that is not as interesting even though the songs may be great um, and uh, uh, some of the songs may be great and some of the songs are terrible and so, you know, Sondheim musicals, I don't get it. I, frankly, most of it, I just don't understand them. Uh, the music doesn't do much for me, so... Uh, uh, but then you know, something like Moulin Rouge comes along and okay this is really original this is really visionary and I respond to that of course I think it also has to do with the person on the stage like somebody like Gil Brenner who just is really commanding you know um, he yeah. was I mean he's gone now but yeah. you know yeah. when you saw him in the movie it was one thing but when you saw him on stage it was it was different. I mean, it it's hard to explain, especially if you 
haven't, you know, some of our, our listeners probably may not have ever been to the theater. But there's, uh, there's a strength of a real talent on stage that even if he put, they, she or he were in the movie and you saw the movie and you loved the movie and then you saw him on, him or her on stage, there's a big difference. It's really hard to even explain. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, yes, that, yes. And that well, and part of that, anything, any kind of, of play or is, movie. Sure, and and that is the difference between live theater and the camera lens and the screen. You know, and uh, there are, there are plenty of uh, stage actors who are huge stars and very very gifted. Who do not translate to a screen? They can't. They can't do it. They, they, you're not interested in them. There's something about the lens that is not accessible to them for some reason, and vice versa. Movie stars and TV stars that go on stage and it, just, it, 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 it lies there. Nothing happens because they they don't have that other gear. I, I guess I'll call it. And uh, it's one of the things that makes all this really interesting. You know, the camera lens which of course is my, my world, um, is very magical. And, um, you know, I, I have met, you know, uh, models, you know, beautiful models, and you get them on camera, you know, and, and they just explode. They're so incredible. And yet in person, they may be a rather unspectacular or ordinary looking but something about the lens and their cheekbones and the makeup and the lighting that that literally transforms them into something that they actually are not and uh, there's a charisma factor to that uh, that is you know if anybody really understood it and they could bottle it they have all the money in the in the world you know they be Elon Musk it kind of reminds me I saw an interview with Mike Nichols I love him. And he was talking about two actors that when he was shooting the scenes on the stage, he, he would do like 20 takes. And he just, he, he, in, until the scene got processed, he didn't see that they had actually gotten it on the third take. Because right. he said that there was something in the it, it was uh, one was um, Elizabeth Taylor on Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, and the other one was Dustin Hoffman in The Graduate. And he said both wonderful actors, both really work hard, both knew their part, they, both brilliant. But there was something on the stage that I just couldn't see that they got what I wanted them to do. But then when I processed it, all of a sudden, boom, you saw it. He goes, it only happened to me twice. But isn't that interesting that the processing of the film brings out the best performance, even though they were wonderful on the stage, they just didn't have that zoom, but they did, and he just didn't see it through the lens? I, I found that fascinating. <laughs> sure, and, and you know, some of that was just his, even though he was a great filmmaker, uh, it was his stage orientation. Uh, you know, Clint Eastwood famously does everything in one or two takes. And uh, because as an actor, he hated doing multiple takes on things, and, and he, he tries to capture the spontaneity of the moment, the actors being completely terrified and spontaneous in the moment. And once actors, have many actors, have said the lines and performed it multiple times, they already know what's going to happen, and some of the spontaneity can go out of it. And I, I went to a directing uh, uh, conversation with Clint Eastwood and Rob Reiner and Peter Jackson and all these great directors all sitting together talking about how they direct and Rob Reiner never does anything in one or two takes. He does everything in 30 or 40 takes and and um, and Clint Eastwood said to him, well, what do you do that for? He said, I hate working for you. And he said, well, you have to break them down and then you've got to build them back up again. And he says, well, why? Why don't they just do it right the first time? And they looked at each other like they were both other from other planets. And you can't dispute the results of either of their films, but their process is completely different. Rob 
Reiner said, I could never settle for the second take or the first take because I'm always thinking there's going to be something better. And, you know, Eastwood said, well, uh, if your actors know you're going to get, you're going to get it and you're expecting them to do it and be spontaneous and get it right, um, they're going to deliver for you and you hire them because they know how to do their job. And the two of them kind of looked at each other. It was a wonderful moment. And, um, uh, Mark Rydell, a great director, he did On Golden Pond and many wonderful films, some John Wayne films. He, uh, uh, I went to a seminar he gave at the Directors Guild in, in Hollywood, and and he said uh, the first thing he does on the first day of every movie is he gathers the entire crew and the entire cast, and he looks at the crew and says, ladies and gentlemen, we are here for one reason and one reason only. That is to capture the magic and the energy of these performers on uh, in the lens. So when we go off and you're lighting and doing your stuff, don't tell us you're ready for us unless you're really ready because once the actors show up it's all about the actors and um, and we're not going to be fussing with lights and we're not going to be doing all that other stuff because we have to be here to capture whatever they do because it's magical and it may only happen once and you know that that's a kind of a point of view that I subscribe to personally that what actors do is very magical and to wear them down and do multiple, 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 multiple takes is almost, a, I think, a, it's an insult. You know, some actors, you know, have a day where they need that. They can't remember their lines or something happens. You know, their cat got sick and they, they just are distracted. They're human beings. But there's something about being prepared. Everybody knows you're going to try to get it. You're not going to stand around all day and waste anybody's time. You're going to get it, and you, you want them to be spontaneous. And and uh, one of the directions that we often tell actors in film is every before the camera rolls, you say, okay, remember, this is the first time you've ever said these words. Because they forget that it's the first time they ever said those words because they've said them ten times you know, that morning, you know, in rehearsing it and, and doing other takes and, and you do your master angles and your close-ups and your over-the-shoulder shots and they wind up doing it a bunch of times and they can lose their their mojo, you know, and very easily, even a top professional actor can just lose steam. The air goes out of that balloon and it's very hard to get it back, even if they are hardworking, responsible professionals. I think that... And, Oh, I'm sorry. I was going to yeah. say, I think Rob Reiner is the reason he does that. I, I saw an interview with Nora um, Ephron, and she was talking about when Harry met Sally. And she was uh, saying how he's very much into improvising, and he's also open to suggestions of everybody, every actor, every even crew members. He's very yeah. open, which is, might be why he it works the way... He, he said in that interview but the interesting thing about the interview that she said was when it was her first screenplay and she said I had always said that I didn't want them to fool around with my words but what happened during the reading was you know the famous scene about the orgasm of the deli oh yeah 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 okay they were rehearsing that and um, Meg Ryan said well why are why let's move that into a public forum instead of the bedroom where we have it? And Rob goes, "Oh, that's a good idea." And she said, "And I can fake an orgasm on camera." So it was Meg's idea. And she, and he goes, "Okay, that's great." So they're talking some more and they're going through the lines, and she fakes it. Everybody laughs, and then Billy. Crystal actually is the one who said, um, why don't we have one of the customers say, I'll have what she's having. And Rob says, I know just the actress for that, thinking of his mom. Not one right. part of that scene that was, Nora goes, I get credit for that line. And she goes, I didn't come up with it. Billy did. <laughs> yeah, well, no, and, and uh, so the, the difference is, um, 
doing what you just described, you know, they, they, they go to the location and then they rehearse the scene and they're improving a little bit in the rehearsal um, and, and maybe even rolling on it and recording those takes. But then if you're going to do that like 30 times, then for many actors, they lose the magic that they had that Mike Nichols was saying, you know, I, geez, I didn't even know that they had it in the second take, you know, because I was looking at other stuff. And so there's the, if, and I'm, again, I'm not disputing the way Rob Reiner works. A lot of directors do, do what he does, but there is an efficiency. Clint Eastwood came from television, you know, as an actor and he, he learned to get it done, get it done quickly when you have to. And you don't necessarily need to do multiple takes. And certainly his, the results of his films are, you know, they're, they're astonishing. And, um, you know, he, he said, uh, you know, I, I hired Gene Hackman. What am I going to tell Gene Hackman? He's Gene Hackman. I hired him because he's Gene Hackman. He knows what he's doing. If he has a question, he'll ask me. Otherwise, I know he knows how to walk into that set and, and with authority and deliver the line. And, they do it a couple of times, no big deal. But after that, he said, "What am I? I don't want to waste Gene Hackman's time. He knows what he's doing." And that was a—it's a wonderful uh, uh, confidence in actors that he he was describing, and and some of the other guys, Neil Jordan and Peter Jackson, the other directors in that conversation, you know, subscribe to that as well in their own way. However, they you know specifically work that you you talk about it, you can get a little bit of rehearsal, and then when you shoot it, you want it to be fresh. And there's something about the energy of all the actors saying it for the really the first time on camera that captures something magical. And, uh, and if you don't get that, then you may be there quite a while trying to get the magic back. And because it goes away, you know, in theater, when they rehearse, they have like a month to rehearse the play. So they, they, they go through it over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. And they, they, they break it all down and then they build it back up and then they get whatever the result is. And when you have a movie or a TV show, you don't have four weeks to rehearse something. You know, you, you've got, you know, 15, 20 minutes <laughs> or an hour if you're really lucky. And you, everybody has to come to it with a different uh, mindset, and it's really fascinating. That's one of the reasons I love working with actors so much. Is that um, uh, you know I've worked with actors that you know are Tony Award winners and Oscar winners and Emmy winners, and have these conversations like you and I are having with them about how they work and their experiences doing this and what they like and don't like. Because every one of them is different. They're not a one size fits all species. You know, they they all have preferences and how they work and then you have your method actors and you have with that training and then you have the Meisner actors and they've got that training and you have actors that have no training at all you know some male model or some some uh, female model you know gets an acting job and they have no no acting training perhaps whatsoever and all those people have to work together and the director has been ought to talk to each one of them in terms that they understand because you don't just say sherry say it louder you know because well if you're a method actor that means nothing to sherry you know because they have a, a language that they have studied and worked on for years uh and if you want them to talk louder you have to motivate them to talk louder uh and this whole acting lesson type of conversation now but it's it's you need to know who your actors are and how they were trained which you find out in casual conversation and in the audition process and then you have to learn as a director or a producer or another actor how to speak to them to get the result that you hope to get by pushing the right buttons as per their training to get what you think they, they're capable of doing. And, you know, some actors are capable of anything. You know, the Meryl Streep's of the world, I don't think anyone has to talk to her very much. She kind of has this, this um, you know, uncanny, not she's not from this planet type of acting skill. Other actors work really, 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 really hard to get half as far. And knowing what that is for them and to help them get the other distances um, one of the treats of, of, of being a producer or a director. 
that you get to actually collaborate with them in terms they understand to get where they want to. I think it's really interesting because I, I was thinking when you were talking about Dame um, Judy Dench. Judy Dench mm -hmm. is very instinctive. She doesn't even read a script before uh -huh. she accepts the part. She she goes by who's who's directing, who am I acting, who am I playing with. Um, but they it, even when she's do I I was watching a behind the scenes of um, As Time Goes By. And she loved doing television except for one thing. She didn't like the part which went from back to the old days. I think Desi Arnaz started it when he started uh, filming in front of a live audience for Lucy. I Love Lucy. Um, you know, introducing the crew before the show. She goes, okay. that's the part. She, uh, she said every, both A Fine Romance and as time goes by, she said, how did I get talked into this? Why am I doing this? Because it's breaking her, the rhythm of the actor. Yeah. Um, and I think that Meryl Streep and, and Judy, even though they came from completely different backgrounds and everything, have a lot in common with their technique that nobody knows about that's mysterious. <laughs> well, it, 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 truthfully, the whole thing is mysterious. I mean, some of my closest friends are actors, and I know them very, very well. And yet, when they are working, they literally become another person. Um, it's very hard for people that don't act or have never acted or you know don't know any actors to to understand. But actors don't act; they don't pretend. Mm -mm. Uh, they become the character. They, they actually become a character, like a chameleon changes colors and becomes a completely different looking creature. It's it's that, and so the the more gifted the actor, the more complete that transformation. And I I have sat there and watched actors, and I literally the muscles in their face change right in front of you. The eyes change. They they take on a completely different look, and. It's like, well, how, what, what, how are they doing that? How are they doing that? And you know how when somebody's like really, really, really depressed, a close friend of yours, and you could see it in their face and everything's hanging different, you know, and um, uh, or when somebody's happy, their eyes light up and their face lights up and there's a magical aura about around them. Well, the actors can do that at will with whatever training they have. You know, they, they go internally and they, they conjure up whatever they need to do. But it's it's really remarkable and and they all do it differently um, and none of it is easy the, the people that uh, I you know I've heard many people talk about Hugh Grant and how effortless he seems on on screen you know is so smooth and debonair and funny and all that and yet he apparently you know drives people crazy on the set because he's meticulous about every detail of what he's going to do and he, his preparation his planning and then the camera comes on and it looks like he's you know just you know, guiding you know, floating through the, the scene completely naturally but it's very prepared and very studied and um so you know you 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 don't know how they're all getting there, and and it, it, when you're on a set and you see two actors with completely different training come together, it's sometimes really shocking because you you don't know how these two people are ever going to play this moment together because they are com coming at it from absolutely different um, uh, not just points of view, uh, just different styles, and yet. Bam! It's something magical happens because they they know how to get there. The other thing, by the way, that actors learn, film actors have to learn. Um, if they come from theater, it's a sometimes a painful transition. But you you you, you have a series of shots you're gonna you're gonna do. You have your master shot of all the action and all the basic um, movement in the set, and then you have different two shots and singles and over the shoulders and points of view shots and so you could be there for many hours or even days shooting that same scene depending on how many people are in it how much time you have and actors have to learn that they, they have to know when their uh, gas tank is, is going to be empty 
uh, in terms of their emotional content for that scene. And if they're crying, let's say it's an emotional scene, somebody's died, they don't. They, they have to hold back and can't give you the full emotional wallop of it in the master. Because then by the time you get, in, get to their close-up, where it really matters, because that's the thing you want to cut to in the movie, they don't have anything left. They have no more tears. Literally, their teardrops are dry. And so professional, experienced film actors learn to calibrate their performance by simply knowing where the camera is and and they, they build their performance very carefully, very, very subtly, from the wide shot to the two shots to their close-up, and then they are ready. I've seen actors, uh, new actors, blow it because they cried their eyes out in the master and then they you know and they do two or three takes of that and then cried their eyes out and somebody else while somebody else is getting their close up and then by, by the time the camera comes around on them they have absolutely no emotion left they're they're drained and it's embarrassing for them and and very painful because their performance was probably great i've seen very good performances and you're never going to see it on screen because it was done in a master shot instead of their close-up and experienced actors learn how to do that and and then you factor in all their training that they have to do to get there what is making them actually cry and so forth is uh, very personal and sometimes very painful and they don't like to go there usually because it's often bringing up a lot of stuff in their real life that helps their character feel those moments and it's uh, quite remarkable to watch it happen and, and also to see how the pros uh, calibrate this stuff to get it just the way it's supposed to be. And uh, uh, there's nothing like it, actually. It's funny because it reminded me, um, I saw um, an interview with Peter O'Toole and he was talking about when he first went from theater to uh, film and he, was, he gave this full-out performance the master so much so that he was exhausted in the first movie yeah. and I, I think it was Alec Guinness who said my boy hold it for the close up but Peter O'Toole of course did it much funnier than I did <laughs> yeah. but, no, but it's, it, believe me uh, and we may have uh, talked about this when I was on your show before but uh, when I was working with Tyne Daly on uh, Catherine Marshall's Christie uh, to the, the original series on CBS. The uh, one day we were sitting on the set, and I said, "You know, what's the difference for you as an actress? You know, you've been on Broadway. Uh, you know, she won a Tony on Broadway. You've been in the movies. She was in uh, one of the Dirty Harry movies, uh, and you've done lots of TV. What What's the difference for you as an actress?" She said, "Oh, that's easy." She said, um, "Theater is to tennis." what movies are to ping pong and television is to marbles. When I'm on stage in Broadway or someplace, I'm playing a big game of tennis. I have to project to the back row of the balcony. And so I'm paying a, playing a big game of tennis with big arm strokes to get that ball over the net across the court. When I'm doing a movie, I know that it is a more contained, much more contained setting, that the camera is getting um, a, a, a specific uh, a field of view, and I don't have to play a big game of tennis. I can now play ping pong, and it's all wrist action and very, you know, technical. And then when I'm in television, I know that it's a much more contained point of view of the camera, and it's you know, big arm strokes and even wrist strokes is too much. I, I, I have to do it in a little little thumb action of, of clicking the marble to to get the the marbles uh, off the field. And she said, that's the difference. And she said, once you learn that and factor it into your technique, you can go back and forth and back and forth all the time because you just have to remember, am I playing tennis or ping pong here or, 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 or marbles? And... It was the clearest way I've ever heard it described, and other actors have their own versions of that that I've also heard, uh, but uh, Michael Caine has a version of that that he's done in his acting uh, videos. But um, 
when you realize the technical aspects of acting, how challenging those technical aspects can be, uh, the precise movements for a camera and, and the camera lighting and so forth, uh, uh, and then they still have to be in the moment and playing another character convincingly and, and with all the emotional content that the script requires and the other actors you know need to do their performances because um, there is an old saying you know, acting is reacting and you're always reacting to what the other actor is doing and if the other actor is not giving you anything then you, it's very hard for you to, to, to do your job so they're all riffing off each other all the time and watching that happen and you see the technical expertise that so many of them bring to this um, it's uh, it's a you know rather humbling experience frankly to watch that especially if you wrote the script as you know Steve Sears and our mutual friend and, and others that you've had on on your show have experience when you've written the script and it's your words and you've already played those characters in your head. You've already been all the roles, you know, in, in your mind. And then you watch human beings bring it to life with all of their flesh and blood and skill sets and and uh, the emotions of the moment. And of course, they're in costume and they're in the real set lighting. Um, it's 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 a a thrilling and humbling experience. It's cool. I I haven't had it the level that you have. I've had it for plays and, and, and radio theater, but when you see when you either see or hear your own words come to life from actors who put emphasis on places you don't really expect, it just, sure. it, it's the magic. There's a magic there. Absolutely. It, it is magic. And um, it's one of the reasons that a lot of screenwriters become producers, so they can be more uh, involved and, and maybe even have more control over how that unfolds uh, on the set, and certainly why a lot of us become directors. And that you know, you just, just as often as you sit in wonderment and you're astonished at how great something is, you also have that sometimes painful experience of watching a scene and you realize, oh my God, how did they miss this deeper meaning that's what, what I thought was so clear in the script. And unless you're there on the set, and you can pull the director aside and say, uh, you know, Harry, yeah, listen, uh, I got to be real honest with you. Yeah, there's a whole thing here that's not not happening. If you're not there to do that, it may not ever happen. And so a lot of us become directors in in self defense. I I have to say, and 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 also selfishly, um, it's less about defense than it is to actually be there and be the collaborator with the actor. I mean, you're there next to the camera and you are right there with them. You're their scene partner. Even though you're not in the scene, you're, you wrote it and you're, direct, you're directing it. But uh, good actors usually enjoy having a director right there next to the lens um, to to feed off of when they, when they look away and they can see you there and they they feel your your approval or in your energy or your your that you're cheerleading for them or you're, whatever you're doing praying for them you know um it's it's a very intimate relationship that directors often have with actors and some actors really need that and others don't want you anywhere nearby they want you like as far away as possible because they they go in their little cocoon emotionally and they don't want you know distraction and that's also part of it, you know, knowing, um, well, what does this actor need? You know, do they need me right here or do they want me to like go hide behind a, a video monitor somewhere out of sight? Because that too is different for every actor. And, and a lot of it depends on your personal relationship with them. And in the course of whatever script reading you had and, and, and as you're shooting stuff over a period of days or if it's a TV series, you you know all the series regulars quite well. Um, it's, it's, it is an intimate relationship and you learn, you know, she's not into this, you know, and let's just stay clear of her because she goes into the zone and boy, she just doesn't want anything, you know, uh, affecting her, especially me, or, or oh boy, she really needs the handholding. She is just very needy and needs a constant approval and reassurance. <coughs> I think that that 
she's hitting the mark and that you're you're pleased you know and they're all different you know uh, creatures and um, because it, they're all different human it, beings <laughs> yeah yeah and and hybrid human beings you know they're they're not just people they are artists with a unique emotional content uh, an emotional process that's not the same as many civilian or non-actors you know uh, call them civilians but the um, for actors to do what they do is extraordinary and you know what this isn't an original thought but it's, it's a fact that you know when we're all children you know age four five six you know we have imaginary friends and you can be perfectly happy playing with you know little soldiers or dolls or whatever you know you're you're, you're you know playing with the ants on the sidewalk you know whatever it is and you be perfectly happy living in a fantasy world and then we as we grow older most of us lose that ability we we no longer can just go to a, an imaginary world comfortably it's not normal really you know for a mature adult to to do that and but actors not only do it but they have to do it they have to sometimes train themselves to recover that ability to do it and um, and so with that comes for many of them a um, there's a consequence to to that um, you know there's a consequence to being able to become another human being and leave yourself in in the room you know with your with your tennis shoes and your purse you know that you 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 it's it's awkward it's uncomfortable it's sometimes um uh, debilitating for them you know uh, the, the the actors who are deeply into their, their method acting and they you know they they not only become the actor in the scene but they become the that that character for you know the entire shoot where they they won't even let people talk to them you know address them by their real name they have to address them you know by their character name because that's who they are and and they're not kidding you know it sounds like uh, you know maybe a, a mental impairment but it's that's that's how they have to do it once they become the character they can't leave that character they they must wear that character 24 7 in order to do what they do and other actors just say okay I'm done let's go let's go have a drink and they're fine and the, so there's a consequence for some of them to do what they have to do and it's you know a, the more you appreciate that the more you learn about it when you're when you're writing and producing and directing these these projects um, the more you realize you don't know anything <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and that you more in awe you are with what they're doing and, and, and that they do it over and over and over again is really something else. I think it's really interesting. Um, I mean, they can even make themselves get over... I, I'll never forget this. I was a kid when I read this book. Um, Doris Day wrote her autobiography, and part of it was about a movie called Young at Heart, and she was in it with Ethel Barrymore. And Ethel Barrymore was very very ill when she was doing this book with this book this movie and she was in a wheelchair and she looked like she was an ill old lady but when she was called on the set it was like she started the character from the moment someone called her and she got up out of the wheelchair she became the character she went out did a perfect job one take went back to her wheelchair and became the ill old woman again. And Doris said, I have, I'll never be that actress. I have never seen anything like it, but I love her. Isn't that amazing? Oh, yeah. Uh, and yeah, believe me, I've, I've seen that. Uh, I remember when I was, uh, years ago, I was uh, a producer on Tom Snyder's Tomorrow Show on NBC, late night uh, talk show. And we used the same... Uh, TV studios to Johnny Carson for the Tonight Show. So Carson would finish his show, the crew would go to a dinner break, and they'd come back, and then we would shoot uh, with Tom Snyder and our guests. And sometimes after, you know, we'd have to wait a half an hour because Bob Hope would come in um, for one of his regular specials on NBC that he did several times a year, and he'd 
he'd wait until like the night before it aired so he could do his monologue in front of a live audience that would be topical uh, based on you know what's happening that day so I'll never forget the first time uh, I he he came in they said well we're gonna we're gonna wait a half an hour or an hour because hope's coming in and he's gonna do his monologue while Carson's audience is still sitting there then the crew's gonna go to dinner break I'm, oh my god I'm gonna, I'm gonna see Bob hope this would be great and in from the parking lot from his car shuffles in this little old shriveled up old man you know I mean literally uh, remember Tim Conway used to do that old man kind mm-hmm. of shuffle yeah. you know hunched over it, it looked like that you know, God, the, I can't even mention what? that Bob Hope? Can't, this can't be Bob Hope and he'd walk in and they put his you know touch his makeup up and everything and then he'd step out and the lights would come up and the audience applauded and suddenly he became erect and he's like hey hi oh hey and suddenly he was Bob Hope the guy that you saw for 30 years doing his specials. He was 20 or 30 years younger. He was vibrant. He was dynamic. He had energy. And as soon as they said, okay, Bob, we got it. Thank you. The lights go off. And he would just punch over again and kind of shuffle out as this little old man. And I asked somebody about it and they said, oh yeah, it's been like that for years. He, he becomes Bob Hope when the light is on and the audience is there. Otherwise, he's just a, a very old, frail man, and that was remarkable. It was one of my first uh, lessons in what performers can do and and do. And the light comes on, and something else happens. And that was an absolute uh, memory I'll never forget. I was standing, you know, fifteen feet from the guy watching him do his monologue, and he was as sharp and as energetic mm-hmm. and alert and funny as he had ever been. I grew up watching those those Christmas specials, right? Those were the Christmas specials that he did every year. And he may have done others, too. I I, I think he did a a couple a year. You know, maybe do them maybe at election time or something. But, you know, that's how they would do them. They would do their sketches or whatever over a period of time. And then he would uh, wait to do the monologue, the, the show open, until the night before it aired. And and they'd work up all those jokes and then he'd come in and, and it was but it was what you're describing from Doris Day's book it was the same phenomenon he went from a man that you would think there's no way he, no way because he that's not Bob Hope he couldn't possibly do this to suddenly bam it was Bob Hope wherever that came from it it just it just his, he stood straight and he was alert he was his eyes sparkled and he just suddenly became a different person and then bam it was over and he just chuckled out you know this little old man and, and you know he was doing that apparently for years um, and very interesting and again it's a tribute to what actors do in his case an actor and, and a performer going back to the old vaudeville days that he you know, they, it's just the show must go on kind of thing and boy they live for that and there's an adrenaline thing that happens for them that most of us don't ever you know, in real life, get to experience, you know, in our jobs or in our, our daily grind, you know, and, and they they live for that moment where Maybe they can be someone else. In his case, he became Bob Hope. Maybe that's why they live to be so old, you know, Bob Hope and George Burns and people like that, because that's just that, that's what they live for. So they live yeah. a long time giving that to the Maybe. people, you know? Yep. Uh, there's probably a lot of truth in that. Probably a lot of truth in that. And, uh, you know, I mean, it's important for people to, you know, do what they love and love what they do and all those old cliches. But, you know, this is maybe you've hit on something that's exactly right, that that if you have that internal motor drive, that, that it's a gene almost. You have that, that gene. There's nothing like it and they need it it's a drug of some kind for them and and it is uh, uh, an insatiable appetite maybe another way of putting it and they live for that so anyway I, I don't know how we got off on all this but it's really it's interesting, interesting stuff it's fascinating uh, and, um, and I've, you know work I've been honored to work with a lot of really good actors on a bunch of TV shows uh, either as guest stars 
some of my childhood heroes, you know, passing through these shows later in their careers and some of the stars of these shows. And um, to just kind of soak it in who they are, how they got where, you know, they, they were on that day and maybe what their training and their 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 special skills might be and they're all very different and um it's it's um a remarkable thing to behold that's just the simple truth of it that's really cool um i i think it's fascinating but i want to transition um yes i want to talk about your new book Oh, I thought you wanted to talk about nuclear physics. So, uh, well, okay. yeah, of course. I'm an expert. I have to talk about nuclear physics. Um, um, no, well, I'm not. Um, let's talk about your book. <laughs> yes. So, so everybody listening is, has, is obligated to go out and buy 20 copies and give them to all their friends. Um, the okay. book is called Devious Thinking. It is a revenge comedy, and um, it is based in no small part uh, on some experiences that I had early in my career I I got to go to Rome and work on a movie a Hallmark Hall of Fame movie and so I was a young guy and I was the assistant to the producer of the film and I'm working with Vittoria De Sica one of the greatest directors that ever lived and uh, (laughs) he's on everybody's top ten list Spielberg you know Scorsese they all include him and uh, uh, so I'm working with him he was actually was starring in this production not directing it and uh, so I spent a lot of time with him running lines with him and all that it was really a great experience but the the my my six or eight weeks in Italy in Rome and a CC in the Umbrian countryside where we were shooting um, was memorable to to me as a young buck and um, and the Italian people on the crew were very and, and in the cast were really really memorable, and a bunch of things inevitably you know happened at the life experiences between people on the crew and me people on the crew and local people that you meet at the hotel or whatever, and a couple of them really stuck in my mind because they were very funny and very unique, and those became. The catalyst, some of the characters and some of the incidents, specific incidents in the novel, came from that that time in, in Rome. And as I write in the the, the introduction, that um, uh, there are a few things in that book that that unfolded word for word how they I, I put them in the novel. But I'm I'm just going to let people figure out which ones are which because. Of course, it's heavily fictionalized, but there are some very real people. There's some, a, a couple of composite characters, but the story is really about two uh, young American women who um, find themselves stranded in Rome for reasons of the plot, jilted by their lovers, um, and stranded. And they 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 meet, and you know they get drunk and they're both drinking away their sorrows and 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 they don't know each other and they they meet they don't like each other and they get in a fight and they get thrown in jail and what happens basically is they decide to get even with these two guys and what they do is they train each other to become the sexual romantic fantasy of their respective man because of course they know all the secrets of the guy as one of them says you know we know the secret handshake and so they train each other to set them up and 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 destroy them and they track these guys down and they seduce them and of course things get all go off the rails uh it, it, nothing is going to be as easy as they think it's going to be they have no idea what they're doing they're just a couple of you know women that that uh, have never done anything like this before but their need for revenge is insatiable and uh, and that's the and it's the, the fun of that journey of them trying to uh, t- take these guys down and give them a taste of their own medicine uh, was really fun to write and uh, I have to tell you they just I, I love them uh, Monty and Dana are their names and I you know I love them I loved hanging out with them I loved you know thinking about them and being in the scenes with them and writing 
their their objectives, you know, and uh, and and then all the things that go wrong, and it's just funny. I mean, you're a writer, and you know, when you're writing, sometimes uh, when you're in the zone, they talk and you type. Mm. You're not really you're not really inventing anything. They're doing it, and you type as fast as you can. And, and that were there was a lot of that in this book, and the response that uh, it's only been out a few weeks, and the response for people has been. Uh, really gratifying, and uh, uh, so I'm 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 thrilled with it. It was so much fun to do, and and I'm glad people are are enjoying it. I think that's cool. Um, I just started it myself, so I haven't read it yet. But it, so far, it's fun. I've only read a few pages. Well, <laughs> but what movie were you making? I'm just curious. Uh, it was called The Small Miracle, based on Paul Gallico's novel. Uh, he wrote Poseidon Adventure, one of his famous novels, but he wrote a lot of uh, smaller novels and novellas. Um, and um, uh, so Il Piccolo Miracolo was the Italian name of it, but it, it, The Small Miracle. And uh, Rappaloni was in it as well, who was in View from the Bridge. Uh, and uh, quite a, it's just a little family movie film, you know, very spiritual. The Sika was a great so, actor. I mean, he was a great director, but he was a great actor. <laughs> well, that was a wonderful actor. You know, he's a big movie star. Uh, you know, he would be like, uh, you know, I, I would. We were in a CC, and my boss said, uh, you know, look, I'd like you to go with Mr. Sika and run lines with him because he, even though he spoke English very well, he learned his lines phonetically. He didn't want to embarrass himself, and he wanted to get it all right. And he said, you just go with him, you know. And, go out to a cafe or something and run lines with him. So I'm sitting with the Sika, and it's like sitting with Brad Pitt, you know, or George Clooney or somebody at an open cafe. You can imagine everybody Uh recognized him and wanted to stop by, and he's such a polite and gentle man. And uh, um, talking about acting process, he, uh, the crew spoke Italian, uh, the producers, the sound mixer, and the... Uh, cinematographer all spoke English and the director spoke uh, it was French and spoke Italian and English fluently and DeSica requested that he do all of, give him all his direction in French because he was the Victoria DeSica and he didn't want to be taking direction have some guy saying that was terrible do it again he didn't want anybody to hear him being corrected like that so he asked would you please direct me in French because most of these guys don't speak French so there were three languages flying around the set at any given moment which was very interesting um, and by the way the uh, my footnote to that that story I had nothing to do with my novel but it certainly was a, um, a moment in my life that I'll never forget is that Desika um he said, well, you, I've just finished my new film, and you must you must come see my new film. And you come be my guest. And, and we said, well, sure, you know. And so we, he said, well, you come to the Universal Sound Recorders tonight, and we will watch my film. So we go over to the, the post-production place, and we're in this huge theater. It's Mr. Basica and my boss, Dwayne Bogey, and his secretary, and me. So four people sitting in this room. And the movie comes up, and it's Garden of the Finzi Cantini. Oh. Which, if people have never seen that, won the Oscar the next year for uh-huh. best foreign film. Beautiful. And if if and, and it was in Italian, it was his personal print of the film in Italian. Of course, no subtitles. He doesn't need subtitles. And I don't speak Italian. And you, it's one of those things where you you understand every word, every emotion, as if you did speak the language. And if anyone has not seen that film, if you like Schindler's List, uh, you need to see this film because it is arguably more moving and more powerful than even that great film. It was just an astonishing achievement. It was his last, um, you know, he had waited 30 years to to make another classic, and it was the defining work of his career. And, uh, you know, he, he won the Oscar the next year, and then I think he passed away, you know, a year or two after that. But um, he would take these acting jobs because he he also liked to go to Monte Carlo and gamble a lot of money away, and and he would make films, and then he they'd be in the lab, and he couldn't get them out of the lab because he hadn't paid his bills, and he would act in movies 
throughout his life to pay either pay off gambling debts or pay for his films to get finished so he could release them because he would you know he, he, that's how he lived his life he was a wonderful man and uh, um, and you know, I'd just gotten uh, through college and had taken you know film history and everything and you know watched all of his films his early films from the Italian neorealism era you know, uh, Umberto D and Bicycle Thief and all these classic movies that he made after World War II and and to be able to sit on this theater in these cafes and ask him about these movies it was just you know mind blowing for a 22 year old kid to, to doing that but it was really wonderful and uh, that whole trip you know was transformative for me and, and, and you know all these years later it, you know it, those things turned into a, a novel so if anybody reads it, there's a lot of all of that in it. Cool. Okay, now I'm even yeah. more excited. I haven't gotten to any of that yet, so I'm really excited. <laughs> well, it, when, and when you finish it, you, you call me and, and tell me if you can identify uh, any of the real characters uh, or real incidents, because there, there are some that maybe you'll figure out when you, when you, uh, when you finish the book. Cool. Um, Tom, we've come to the end. Do you have a website? And also, what is your um, your handle on the different social medias? Um, I don't remember what my handle is because I, I never use it. So if somebody needs to reach me, uh, maybe they can you know go to you and you can kick it my way. It would be probably good. Um, uh, my, my website is Tom Blumquist. Dot com and there's stuff about me and about my two novels and all of that there if anybody's interested in that and I'm on Facebook of course so people can look me up over there as well great I want to thank you for taking time out of your day to come on my show thank you so much well thank you Sherry it's really fun I love talking with you you uh, you're interested in so many different things and, and interesting to talk to and uh, I had no idea we'd be talking about actors and acting so much, and it's just <laughs> fun to talk about it uh, uh, because you know I I uh, uh, well you're you're a novelist and you know that when you're writing you you are the, the all those characters you are playing all those roles mm -hmm. and you are the director and you are the composer and you're doing everything you know you're painting the pictures you're the you're the uh, production designer you're designing the sets the costumes you're doing everything and so uh, I know you understand deeply how some of that resonates for me and uh, and you can imagine you know just being on a set with a crew and a camera and a bunch of actors and guiding them through something that you've written is you know just it's it's like the best time yeah. <laughs> ever. I well, bet you'll have to do that. You have to get out there making a movie someday. <laughs> I hope so. Um, thank you, Tom. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Sherry. Talk yeah. to you soon. Thank you, and thank you for chatting with Sherry. Oh, oh, oh.